So Judges chapter 17. Um, now, uh, we're going to go through both Judges 17 and 18, uh, but I'm just going to read a, a portion of it uh, to leave time to be able to go through it. So uh, if you are able, we, we stand when we read the word together. So if you could stand, uh, starting in Judges chapter 17, verse 1. Uh, I'm going to read 1 through 6, just that section, although we'll go through all of it. And uh, after I finish reading it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And after I say this is the word of the Lord, you'll say, thanks be to God. Uh, and this isn't some chanting that we're doing. Instead, we're just saying together that we love that the Lord would give us his word, and we're thanking him that he gave us his word. And so you're, you're doing that. But also, as you say thanks be to God, let it be within you uh, uh, an affirmation to the Holy Spirit. The things that you teach me today, I want to say yes and obey. So starting in verse, verse 1, chapter 17. There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you and about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it to my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it that should say stole. Um, his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved and metal image. <clears throat> now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So, when he restored the, mother to his the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine he made and, uh, and he made an ephod of household gods and ordained one of his sons who became a priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. We pray that as we look at these two particular chapters, that you, Jesus, would help us see that every text in Scripture, Old New Testament, is ultimately about you and that you are the hero of everything. And so help us see Christ as our king. Help us worship you rightly as we look at this text of uh, Micah and how uh, his inter our relationship, our interactions with the Danites um, really points us to Jesus. And so uh, we pray that as syncretism, false worship, mixture of false gods can certainly happen with us, um, that you would keep us from that, and that, Lord, that we would want to worship you rightly as you has, have prescribed to us. So, Holy Spirit, I am I'm dependent upon you completely this morning for you to come and teach through me. There's no way that I could ever teach your word without your spirit, so please come help and stir all of our affections as we look at this text for Jesus, and may they overflow in love for him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In uh, D.A. Carson's uh, book called Basics for Believers, it's a commentary on the book of Philippians, he opens up with this. And as I read this, um, what I'm going to read, the very first paragraph is uh, a modern day example or description of what's really going on in the judge's day of how they appreciate God. It starts with this. It says, I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much to make me, but not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people. I would like just enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. Now, what we're going to see here in this particular text is the modern-day kind of description or Judges Day equivalent of a $3 gospel. People who are just willing to have just a little bit of Jesus or a little bit of God, and then they practice what's called syncretism, which is we have God, we believe in God, but we're going to add a whole bunch of other idols to it and pull it into this one kind of mixture of religions. And when you do that, that's not worshiping God along with other, anything else. That's become a false religion. It's become a false God. And so... They're practicing that, and what we see in Carson's book is a great primer or a great kind of understanding to look in here and say that's, that's an a modern-day equivalent of what's happening in the day of Judges. And so we're going into chapter 17 here where 
Um, as we've been going through all the way up to chapter 16, the, the people of Israel have been told there's oppressors all around you. There's external pressures on you that are causing you not to worship God correctly. Kill and get rid of all those external pressures. Get rid of all the uh, pagans around you so that you can worship God rightly. Well, as we finished last, and the judges would come and help that happen every, every time that we would be studying. They got worse and worse, no doubt, the judges did. But uh, when we get to chapter 17, there's, there's five more chapters left in the book, but there's no more judges that come to their rescue. So the point of chapters 17 through 21 is to show us now there are no external oppressors. All the problems that Israel is going to experience, all the problems that the people of God are going to experience is not because it's happening on the outside. It's all internal. It's the people of Israel disobeying, causing strife for the people of Israel. It's Israel doing this to themselves. So 17 through 21 is showing us how Israel is bringing um, this upon themselves. And so we're going to look at this for the next two weeks. 17 and 18 today, we're going to see how there's chaos within the middle of Israel in their worship and how they have a false religion. And then 17 through 21 next week, we'll do the rest of it, how there's chaos in their morality. And all of it's internal. It's not external. It's all internal. And then after that, we'll do... uh, the last week in November, we'll do a Thanksgiving sermon, and then we have Stephen Splawn coming December 2nd. Now, next week, uh, this is just a, a heads up for all of you. Next week um, is, if you were to give chapter 19 through 21 like a rating, it would be rated R. And so it's, it's violent, and, and, and it's the end of the book of Judges. Remember, the book of Judges is designed to show us the downward spiral of depravity. And so when you get to 19, you're just like, wow, this is like the most horrific story I've ever read in the Bible. Why is it here? Um, It's to show us what life gets like when you don't have a king. Um, And so that's next week. And so for those of you that have kids, we're going to have kids area uh, all the way up into elementary age next week. Uh, It's a a one-time deal. We're doing it in both services. But if you have children and you don't want them, you might want to read chapter 19 to decide. If you want them in here, that's fine. But just know it's rated R. Um, uh, It's not like I'm going to be up here cussing or something. That's not what I mean. It's just a very violent chapter. Um, So we'll have kids area next week uh, for you up until elementary age if you don't want them to be a part of that what's going on here. So anyway, uh, back to the text. So we're looking at 17 and 18 right now. Next week, we're going to look at 19 through 21. There's, there's no more judges, as one com- commenter says, as we're looking at these last chapters. And there's no refrain of Israel's apostate, meaning there's no one saying, and Israel is apostate here. There's no announcing of new oppressions. There's no central judge figure coming to save the day. The writer changes his style in chapter 17 to portray for us the confusion of this depraved, people. So as we read this, what we're going to see in chapters 17 and 18 is just horrible decisions upon horrible decisions upon horrible decisions upon sin upon sin upon sin. And it's just a huge mixture of mess. It's all really bad. And that's to help us see what it's like when there is no king. And again, the enemy in the rest of this book of Judges is not external, it's internal. Samson is dead, and as the book of Israel, uh, I'm sorry, as the book of Judges closes, Israel does not have a rescuer anymore. It's showing us in these last chapters when Israel's left to their own devices, to their own resources, when they live and do what's right in their own eyes, just how bad it gets. And so, since these chapters are so different from the rest of them, how are we to understand them? Since the writer shifts in the way that he writes, Uh, And and the narrator in the previous chapters, as we write, he'll inject some sentences and say, and this was bad, and this was bad. He doesn't do that. It's, it's, It's absent from being able to do those kinds of things for us this time. So how are we to understand what's going on? Well, he... He does hint uh, at what he thinks about it, but it's just a lot more subtle here. Uh, he does it by telling us um, that there's no king and how the house of God should be instead ordered. So um, as we're doing that, I want you to go ahead and see some subtle hints that he does. Uh, and then we'll get into the text. So ch- chapter 17, verse 5. Chapter 17, verse 5. Look at it with me. It says, and the man Micah had a shrine. Whatever version you have might not say shrine, but here it says shrine. Literally, this is house of gods, house of gods. And so um, shrine just kind of says, there's a little place for it. But instead, what he had is just 
before they set this up, they already had a house of gods, and so they're adding to their house of gods. Now, the, the word house of gods, that's lower G, is intentional in 17.5 because as 17 and 18 end, if you look at 18 verse 31, the last verse, the last line of chapter 18, it says, so they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God, that's the same words as 17.5, but instead that G is capitalized. And so we have this contrast of 17.5 and 18.31 where here is a house of idolatry, but there is a true house of God in Shiloh that no one knows to, knows, no one goes to, and no one obeys God correctly. So we have this contrast of house of gods in 17.5 and 1831 to help us see they're a mess and they're idolaters. There is a place where there is a true house of God in Shiloh, the only place that's mentioned in the book of Judges, right there, but none of these people are part of it. None of these people are part of it. So it's, it's showing us subtly, the writer's showing us subtly what, uh, what it means to have a... Uh, a true understanding of who God is. And so as he's writing, the way that we understand is he's using these contrasts of what it looks like. He depicts the characters in negative ways. He maintains a distance from these characters. It's not like he comes alongside of them. Like, like as he writes uh, and judges, I think it's three, about Ehud, the left-handed man that, st- that stabs the fat dude on the toilet. Like you're like, I kind of like Ehud. And he writes it in such a way that makes you like Ehud. As, you, as he writes this, you, he maintains a distance that's like, doesn't make you like Micah. He doesn't make you like the priest. He doesn't make you like the Danites. So he writes it in a way from a distance, uh, not painting them or writing them as, as, as people that are, that are likable. And so uh, the first, if, I, won't have any, 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 uh, I won't have any sermon points on the screen just because it's, it's, I'm just going to make comments all the way through. I do have some points that I want to make. Uh, but before we get to, uh, into the text, I want to go ahead and make the first point. So if there is a sermon title, it's true worship versus false religion. True worship versus false religion. And that's what we're going to be looking at here is what's true worship versus false religion. But before we get into verse by verse, uh, verse by verse exposition, I want to make the first point of true, true worship versus false religion as a whole uh, in both chapters. And let me point it out to you. Look at uh, 17 verse 6. 17 verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So here we have the writer telling us there was no king. Look at 18 verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And as I've already pointed out, look at 1831. There was a house of God in Shiloh. And so as we're He's putting those in there, helping us see that had there been a king, this wouldn't have happened. Had they gone to the house of God correctly in Shiloh, this wouldn't have happened. But here we are. And so the first thing I want you to see, those, those subtle hints in 17.6, 18.1, and 18.31 serve for us to give us our first kind of point as we're looking at 17.18, which is this. False religion, which is what's going on in 17.18, leads to heretical worship. Therefore, the powerful antidote to the false religion is to make Jesus your king as 17.6 and 18.1 suggest to us so that we can then therefore worship God rightly, which is what 18.31 tells us. So to say it again, false religion brings about heretical worship, which is all over the pages of chapter 17.18. But therefore, the powerful antidote to this false religion is to make Jesus your king and therefore worship him rightly. What does it mean then to make Jesus your king? Uh, one catechism, a catechism is just like uh, a thing that tells you questions and answers about theology. One catechism says it this way. How does Christ execute himself then as the office of king? This is how he does it. Christ executes himself as the office of king, therefore, and calling out the world uh, Calling out of the world a people to himself. Let, let me stop before I read this. I just want to make sure I'm clear of what I'm doing here. Um, in order to not fall down the trap of 17 and 18 and becoming like these people, what I want to do in this first point is to get all of us in the right mind frame of make Jesus your king. Make Jesus your king. Don't make him a king on your heart and, and practice syncretism where you have all these other idols. I don't have that. I don't, I don't carve out monkeys of a, of a piece of wood. I don't have an elephant that I've 
you know, scraped out in marble and have that FUD. I'm not a syncretist. Yes, we are. We worship Jesus and we put all other kinds of, not carved images, but idols that we have in our own lives. And I'm saying, and to me and to all of us, take all those things and throw them in the garbage and lift Jesus up as the king and the only king of our hearts. And so here's what that means then. How does Christ do this as, as king? What does he do when he's the king? He executes the office of king by calling out people out of the world to himself. He gives them laws to obey and censures. He gives them officers or people to obey. He uh, visibly governs them. He bestows upon them, those that are his children, saving grace. He rewards obedience. He corrects them when they sin. He perseveres and supports them whenever they have temptations and sufferings. So whenever you sin, he, he helps you persevere so that you can go through that sin and not do it anymore. He restrains all the enemies and overcomes enemies that are trying to surround you. He powerfully orders all things in our lives for his glory and therefore for our good, for his glory and our good. He also takes vengeance eventually on all the rest who oppose him that don't know him and do not obey the gospel. This is what it means to have Jesus as our king. This is what he does when he's king. And the writer, this particular writer here, when he says there was no king in Israel, we can, we can ascertain then this writer had seen a king before. So when the book of Judges was written, he wasn't writing it in real time. This had happened, and he was later on in history looking back and writing and recording what he had heard through there, which means he lived in Israel's time when there was a king. And whenever there was a king that would say, this syncretism doesn't stand. Well, there's only one pinpoint that we can look at the Israel's history and say, well, it must have been this particular time. It was probably in the life of David early, <laughs> right? And the life of David early. That's probably the only time. So likely the writer of Judges lived, and this is debatable, but lived in the, in the time of the early points of David where he's reading and hearing these stories and said, if David was alive at that time, he would have stomped out that syncretism. He wouldn't have allowed it to happen. And so the writer, as he's looking at it, he's saying, the problem is they have no king in Israel because he, if he was there, he would have put a stop to the syncretistic nonsense. Now, if we move that into our time, the same's true. We, we have the truer and better David. We have King Jesus who looks at us and says, put a stop to the syncretistic nonsense in your life. Get rid of idols that you worship and put Jesus on the throne. So how does that apply to us? Let me do this for us. I want us to hear a series of New Testament texts and Instead of just listening to them so that we can get to the next thing, I want you to let these texts move into your heart. I'm going to read them, and they're somewhat, somewhat long, um, for the point of all of us to be mutually edified, to have our hearts stirred to hear just how great King Jesus is. And so that we can hear how great he is as king and therefore want to have him as the king of our heart and, and put his throne in our heart. So you have, every one of us has a throne on our heart. And most of the time, on, my, on, the heart of my, on the throne of my little heart is King Fudd, right? And I need to take little King Fudd off, and Jesus is, should be on the, on the throne of my heart, and he needs to be on the side. Or whatever else you put on your throne besides yourself. And so I want to read you a series of New Testament texts that help us see and understand uh, about King Jesus. Now, the first one's in First Peter. He doesn't use the kingly language and throne language, but nevertheless, he talks about him as the chief shepherd. He says, when the chief, chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So this means one day when Jesus comes, everybody that's persevered to the end that's his child will receive this um, unfading crown of glory that will be given to you. In other words, you will be um, finally glorified and uh, made to be like him in his death, uh, in his resurrected body, where you are made completely whole. When he appears, King Jesus does this for us. Another place I want to read is a glimpse of the throne room where the right, Paul in Romans 8 tells us about uh, King Jesus on the throne. He's talking about what it looks like, and he says this, Who is to condemn? King Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So he's telling us that King Jesus is seated, seated on the throne, interceding for us continually. And Paul goes on to say, and who's going to separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword that is written? For your sake, we am being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, in verses 38 and 39, Paul's going to use as many descriptors as he can to describe the love of God for us. He's going to stretch as far as he can in human language to get to the ends of what God's love looks like and just realize finite language only scratches the surface and that beyond it is vast love. But he's going to nevertheless do that for us, starting in 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so in Romans 8, he's painting a picture of King Jesus sitting on the throne, interceding for us, and then helps us see as he sits on the throne um, interceding for us, nothing separates you from this amazing love that King Jesus has for you. Now, I want to take you to the throne room and let you see uh, what ultimately one day is going to happen in the throne room with King Jesus. Revelation 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what, may, much t- what must take place after this. At once... I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven. So we were ushered into with words what it will be one like to see one day for all of us to see King Jesus. And he says, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. That's Jesus. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was... There were a sea of glass like crystal, and all around the throne, on each side of the throne, there are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The seventh living creature was like an ox, like an ox, like a lion. This is a first century guy saying what it's like. The the third living creature was like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like the eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, full of eyes all around them, and day and night they never ceased to say. So we've got the picture of just how unbelievable we're in the throne room, King Jesus sitting there, and what is it that all the multitudes that are sitting there saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne who lives forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, I'm adding some in there, um, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and ever and they cast their crowns before him saying, worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So we get this picture of the throne room where the only thing that they can say over and over is holy, 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 you are and were and were and is to come forever and ever. Now, why is it that they're saying this? Why are they saying that he's worthy? Well, we could go into Revelation 5 and see, because he's the only one worthy to unroll, um, open up the scrolls. But let me take you to one more text to help us understand why. Philippians chapter 2. Remember, all these texts I'm reading is to, for one purpose, is to engage you at the deep heart level so that you will say, wow, look at King Jesus Forget all these other things. You're the king of my life. Philippians chapter 2. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, he's, he's explained to us as we're going through how Jesus was God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, kenosis, and became a man. And he obeyed God the Father all the way to the end, all the way to the throne, I mean, all the way to the cross, giving his life for us. And when that happened, what did God the Father do? Why are they in Revelation 4 saying, holy, worthy, worthy are you? Uh, Holy, holy, holy is the one. This is why. Verse 9 of chapter 2 of Philippians. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, here it is, every knee should bow. All Christians will bow willingly. All non-Christians will bow unwillingly. But nevertheless, they will bow. That in earth and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue confess, every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory of God the Father. So when Philippians 2 is written and telling us that every tongue confess, this means that in Revelation 4, it's not just all those people. We're there singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So one day we will do that. So let's do it today. Not just that day. So as we're looking at this particular text, what we want to do, instead of having false religion, we want to have true worship. And therefore, the true antidote to false religion is because of the gospel, because of the good news that Jesus gave his life, that we put Jesus as the king of our life and worship him rightly. Jesus is the king because he obeyed God the Father and died for our sin on the cross, paying the price for our sins so that if we have repented and been forgiven, we make him the king. That's the first point. Now, verse one. Now I want you to see something in verse one. It's important that you see it uh, because what's going to happen to Micah is going to move into the whole tribe of Dan. Look at verse one. There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Meet Micah. There he is. Now, what the writer is wanting to do is to say the same story is going to happen in 17 as it does in 18. Meet Micah in verse 17, one. Meet Dan, not a person, a tribe, in 18.1. And there was in those days, I'm 18, reading 18.1, in those days there was no king, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance. So as he juxtaposes 17.1 and 18.1 together, where you meet Micah and then meet the tribe of Dan, it's the same story. The first time it happens to a man, the second time it happens to an entire tribe, meaning in the tri- it happens to the tribe because of Micah, meaning sin that starts with people, infuses itself into larger groups. And so uh, negative things happen whenever we choose to sin, and it doesn't ever just stay with us. It goes into larger people, and that's what's happening here. Meet Micah, because what he's going to happen to him, it's going to happen exactly to the entire tribe of Dan. Now, 17.1, and I promise you I'm gonna get through this, and y'all are here, which and first service isn't, which means I can do it. In the, in the time allotted. And there was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse, that made me nervous that you uttered that curse. And so I was like, oh, I don't want to curse on me. So that made me real nervous. And you spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver was me. I stole your 1,100 pieces of silver, mom. It was me. And that curse kind of made me nervous and I didn't want it to happen to me. So we don't really see repentance here. We just see a dude that's nervous with his mom. Uh, and so the mom isn't necessarily walking with Yahweh either. She's obviously a syncretist as well uh, because she doesn't call for true repentance of her son. Look at her response. It's like immediate forgiveness without very little remorse or repentance. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. Um, And he restored her. So the apple didn't fall too far from the tree from the mom to him. And we'll see why here uh, because we see it in her. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, watch this. I dedicate the silver to the Lord. That's 1,100 pieces. I dedicate the silver to the Lord for my hand, for for my son. And I want to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, this is not what God wants, right? This goes without saying. We, this is obeying, disobeying the second commandment. Uh, you don't make images for God. He doesn't need that, and nor does he want it. But she's like, oh, I got my 1,100 pieces of silver back. I'm gonna give the 1,100 pieces over to donate them to make, to make little G gods in my house. Wrong. I mean, again, the point of 1718 is just to show us just how many wrong-headed, wrong-worshipful, sinful decisions that these people make without God. Here's one. Stealing from mom, Forgiving right away. Tim Keller says about this, this non-response, this, this forgiving response or this non-remorse that he has. He says, without Micah having gone through the painful process of true repentance, there is for Micah no deterrence to such behavior in the future. That his mom doesn't do it. No challenge for him is given to examine his own heart and the reason why he took the money. No humbling acceptance also of the need for grace from God and change. He doesn't get to experience grace because his mom's like, oh, bless you, you brought it back. Like, bad, right? Not good. And then, to keep seeing why I say the apple didn't fall too far from the tree to Micah from her, this is what happens. Um, I'm going to restore this silver from, to God and make, make metal images, which he doesn't need. Now, therefore, I'll restore it to you. So he restored it, the money to his mother, and the mother took 200. Now, I just remember 1,100, 
The mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith. So I'm gonna give all this 1,100 over to God so he can make these, these idols that he doesn't want. Let me get this 900. Here's 200. I'm gonna keep this 900 and go to, you know, to the mall or whatever. Like, again, she lies here and doesn't do what she says, even though what she was gonna do was wrong anyway. Um, and so she gives it to the silversmith who made a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, again, that's house of lowercase gods, uh, that he made an ephod and household gods. And then, just to top it off with more, more sinful decisions, he made one of his sons a priest. Now, his son's not a Levite. Only the Levites are supposed to be priests, and they're not even around. And he's like, ah, I need a priest here. Son, I'm gonna ordain you as my household priest. Now, Priests weren't supposed to be for households. They were supposed to be for people, like more than just a household. And so he makes a household priest for himself of a non-Levite. Just bad decision upon wrong decision upon disobedience upon disobedience that we have. We're only in verse five, right? Um, And that's why the writer says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their their own eyes. Just bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. Um, disobedience after disobedience after disobedience. And he says, in their eyes, I mean, in those days, he did, he did what was wrong. They did what was right in their own eyes. Now, here's what happens as a result of this. Deuteronomy chapter 27, you can just listen. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 15 says this. It said, cursed is the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of craftsmen. So we know that if after that, if you make these things, then you have brought curse, curses upon you, not blessings. And so since he has done this, and maybe he doesn't even know the law, but since he's done this, what follows in his life, which we're going to read as a tragedy, is because he's disobeyed 20, Deuteronomy 27, 15, which means, brings us to our second point, which is he has brought ju- the judgment of God. He's brought the curse of God upon him because of his disobedience. So if the first one is we're looking at false religion versus true worship is false religion brings about heretical worship. So the powerful antidote to that false religion is make Jesus your king and worship him rightly. The second thing we can see is false religion or here syncretism, which is just a mixture of a bunch of religions, which becomes a false religion. False religion also brings the judgment of God. He's going to experience that as he keeps going through these chapters. Conversely, if you don't want the judgment of God, true worship and worshiping God rightly brings blessing. And so he does not have blessing follow him. He has the judgment of God happen to him. So when we see the Danites come in here and steal all his stuff, that's because he's cursed by God because he set up these, this, this idol house, I-D-O-L. Um, now, we're going to keep going here into verse seven. So the second point as we look at verses one through six is false religion brings about the judgment of God. He's bringing that upon himself from Deuteronomy 27, 15. But conversely, if we don't want the judgment of God, we don't want the curses of God as believers, then instead we worship God rightly and then we receive his blessing. Verse seven, now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah and the family of Judah who was a Levite and he sojourned there. This is also wrong. Levites aren't aren't supposed to just leave Bethlehem and sojourn and kind of be uh, priests for hire. They stay where they're supposed to be and they're supposed to do what they are. So again, Bad decisions and, and disobedience. And the man departed uh, and went from the town of J- Bethlehem and Judah and went to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed around, to the, he came up to this hill country of Ephraim where Micah was, whom we just met. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem and Judah. And I'm going around and just sojourning where I can find a place. I'm just, you know, kicking it, relaxing, doing whatever I want. Um, and so uh, and Micah said, oh, perfect. Well, I've made my son wrongly uh, a priest in my household. And he's not really supposed to be. Why don't you become my priest? And so he kicks his, Micah kicks his son out. Like, thanks a lot, buddy. You're gone. I got a real one. And so uh, verse 10, stay with me and become to me a father and priest. And I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes for your living. By the way, that's a really high, high income for a priest. They don't make nearly that much. And so he's like, hey, hey, I'll make that. That sounds good to me. Um, And so, and the Levite went in. The Levite was content to dwell with the man. I'm sure he was. Uh, And he became like a, him like one of his sons. And Micah ordered the Levite and the young man became his priest, ordained the Levite, sorry, and the young man became his priest uh, and was in the house of Micah. Again, priests aren't supposed to just wander around. You're not supposed to have priests for your household. It's supposed to be for a people. And he he just kicks his son out like it's no big deal because he finally gets himself. And then to bring it all to these things, 
Micah's feeling really good about himself. He's like, oh, he's mistaking what's happening as blessing whenever he knows that curses are supposed to happen to him, Deuteronomy 27. He's thinking everything's great, and you can see that in this verse, in verse 13. Now Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Now I know that it's going to happen. Well, first, let's talk about the swapping of the priests, <laughs> kicking his son out and bringing in this new young man of Bethlehem. Um, what, we don't get to, Keller says it this way, ultimately, obedience to God's commands and how we approach and worship him have become an optional extra, not a central principle. I can just ordain pr- people that aren't, that aren't priests as my thing. I can just worship how I want. I can make people, I can kick this guy out and bring another one. I can have priests in my household, brethren, for our people. I can worship God the way I want to worship God because it's all up to me. God might have prescriptions of how he wants me to worship, but no thanks, God. I don't really have to follow your prescriptions of worship. I choose how I worship you because really, when we do that, we're not worshiping God. We're worshiping a God that we think that he is, and we're just worshiping ourselves. That's all we're doing, and that's what he's doing. He's really just worshiping ourselves. So this means... If we take this as an application for us today, we don't need to be like Micah where we worship as our heart suggests. Instead, we need to follow the Bible and we worship as God prescribes to us in his word. We don't get to just pick willy-nilly the way we worship. So if I made a modern-day example of that, it means, um, it means that whenever we come to worship on Sundays, our minds should not approach Worship on Sunday mornings with individualistic categories. The Bible doesn't tell us to work, worship as a bunch of individuals. When we come to church, we worship as a congregation. We're supposed to approach worship in congregational categories. When we sing, we sing, not a bunch of I's sing. I, like capital I. We, we worship together, which means we don't say, I don't need anybody around me. I need my own corner, and I need to just kind of give me my space, and it's just me and Jesus, and forget all y'all. That's not how it's supposed to be. When we come corporately together, we are in glad-hearted unity, embracing the fact that we're all sinners here, and we all need to sing out together to Jesus. We're, we're uniting our voices and looking at each other and saying, we're all the same because we're all desperately hoping that Jesus is going to save us one day and we have trusted him. So congregationally, we are singing out to Jesus together, not a bunch of eyes individually. We approach worship congregationally. Another example would be um, Jesus has told us that uh, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to love him and love others. And so congregationally, when we come together, it should inform the way that we're around each other and we have discussions the way that we love one another in our, in our churches, in the lobby and in, in this room, the way we think about how, who we talk to. How, who do we talk to and why? Again, when you come to worship, you don't worship as your heart suggests. You worship as God prescribes. And so we, we approach corporate worship um, not just with what I want. We don't think of it in individualistic categories. We think of it in congregational categories because we're the ecclesia, the called out ones, that's plural. We're not the called out one. We're the church, We're the people of God. And so um, the religion that we see in Micah's house uh, is about me and my ideas and my preferences. But the religion or the, the gospel tells us that it's about Jesus, our being the church and what God prescribes. Now that's just talking about the swapping of the priests, but let's also look at 13 because 13 is just an absolute mess. This is a, uh, a transactional view of God. Look what he says. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite in my house as a priest. I've done things and now God's gonna bless me. This, this means, just to say it this way, Jesus is supposed to be the treasure, not the means to your idol treasure. For him, it's prosperity. Now I know God will prosper me because I've followed the rules he says. For him, the end is prosperity, not Jesus. For us, the end, Jesus isn't the ticket you punch to get to your idol. Jesus is the ticket you punch to get to Jesus. He is the means, but he's also the end. He's not just the means. Tim Keller says it this way, the purpose of Micah's religious efforts is to get access to God so that God can do what Micah wants. 
The goal of true faith is to give God access to your heart so that God can get you to do what God wants, not what you want. Religion, what Micah has, its true purpose is to get God to serve you. The gospel and gospel faith purpose is to get your heart to serve and love God so that you do what God wants, so that you serve God. And that's not what's going on here in verse 13. He has a very transactional view of God. And so we keep going in verse 1, and we see uh, how this goes larger. Again, this small sin that started in the brain of of, uh, Micah's mom moves into Micah and then infuses itself into a family, and now it's about to spread even further into the tribe of Dan. In those days, there was no king in Israel. That's why he tells us that they're doing whatever they, they're treating God transactionally, and the reason why is because there's no king in Israel that day. And in those days, the tribe of people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. Notice this, Dan was walking around seeking for an inheritance to dwell in, for until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to Dan. Why is poor Dan not getting their inheritance? Well, because in Judges chapter one, God specifically told them, that's a hard word, specifically told them, if you want your inheritance, here it is, go fight those people and take it over. We don't wanna fight, so we're just not gonna do that. We're not gonna obey God. So they're wandering around trying to find an inheritance that's already been promised to them. And so what we're gonna see here is because they failed to fight and obey God, they're homeless, and instead of obeying God, they're wandering around for a home in active disobedience. And here's the thing about active disobedience. Active disobedience leads to more active disobedience. That's what's going to happen for them. Instead of obeying uh, Judges 134, they're going to, as we're going to see, go kill a bunch of people that they were never told to kill. They're actively disobeying God, and which leads to a huge slaughter of a bunch of people, which, by the way, murder's wrong. More active disobedience. And so that's what they're going to do here. We'll see it in a second. So they're, they're wandering around because, as I've said, 17 and 18 is just showing just how depraved the people of Israel come. And all of this is internal. All of this is because they're doing it themselves. Verse 2, so the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtol, to spy out the land and to explore it. Now, uh, this is supposed to sound like Joshua, uh, er, the early chapters of Joshua, whenever they, let's go spy out the land. And we see this is the failed, uh, the failed spies of Joshua gone bad in Judges 18. Just like in Judges 19, uh, it's the failed, failings of Judges 19, like in Sodom and Gomorrah. If you read Judges 19, it's, it's Sodom and Gomorrah again. But it's not, it's not, uh, it's not the, the pagans doing it, it's the people of God doing it. That's, how, that's the whole point is, it's no longer the pagans doing those horrible things. The people of God are doing the things that the pagans used to do. Here we are. Um, so they sent them in to explore it, and they said, go and explore the land. They came out to the hill country of Ephraim uh, to the house of Micah and Lodger. So the people of Dan are traveling around. They're looking for places, and as they're traveling around, they, hunt, they wander upon this house of Micah, and they lodge there. Uh, and when they were at, there by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. That's the, the in ver, chapter 17, 7, the, the priest that he's hired. The reason why they recognize the voice is because they're all in the north, and this guy was a southern guy, and so he had wandered up there. And so he's saying, hey, y'all, listen, let's all calm down. And they're like, that's a different accent. Why are you here? We're in the north. You're supposed to talk really fast and, and stuff, and you talk slow just to get your sentences out. And so basically, I'm kidding, right? So basically they say... Um, they recognized the voice of the young Levite because he was Southern, and they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing up here? Why, why are you Southerner doing up here in the North? What's your business here? And he answers, this is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me. No, I won't read it like that. He, he's hired me, and I've become a priest. Uh, and they said to him, okay, well, if you're a priest, inquire of God. Side note, they don't say capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. Inquire of generic God, because they don't, they don't know God. 
They don't know Yahweh. Inquire of God, please that we may know whether the journey on which we're setting out will succeed. In other words, hey, uh, Levite, who's in the wrong place, who's disobeying God, we're disobeying God, and we want to go kill more people and disobey God. Could you ask God if our disobedience is going to go well and your disobedience? So surely uh, we're going to have a lifeline right up to God, and he's going to give us the right answer because we're all in active disobedience. So could you just let us know if our continued disobedience is going to go okay? <laughs> and he gives this nice little generic answer, which is, uh, and the priest said, go in peace. The journey on which you're under is under the eye of the Lord. Not it's going to work. It's, hey, uh, go ahead. God's watching. Well, that's true about anything, right? Hey, God's watching you. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that means good. So thanks for letting us know that we're, uh, this act of disobedience we're in is going to go well. That's not really what's going on. But uh, he's not giving blessing to this. He's just saying God's watching you, and they're mistaking it as God's going to bless, which is wrong. Verse 7, then the five men departed and came to Laish, that's the place that they're going to kill everybody. And saw the people who were how they were and how they lived in, in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that's on the earth, possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers in Zor and Eshtal, and their brothers said to them, what's your report? And they said, arise, let us go against them. For we have seen the land, and behold, it's very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter, to the le- to enter and possess the land. As you go, as soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious for God, wrong, not Yahweh, God, has given it to your hands, a place where there's no lack of anything that's in the earth. In other words, Dan doesn't have a place. They see this place, Laish, and they're like, we don't ever have found our place. We found this. No one's around them, so no one will ever attack it. There's no one around them to protect themselves. We can go in, we can kill them all, we can take that land, and it'll be ours. We'll finally have an inheritance, except it's not theirs, right? It's not theirs, but we know that if we do it, we'll probably win because they have really no real protection. And man, the land's great. So we should just go do it anyway. And so that's what they're saying. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, Dan I'm at verse 11. 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zor and Ashtol, and they went up. So basically they're, they're going over to this land Laish to kill everybody and take the land that they're not supposed to take. And on the way, they're going to hit the house of Micah, like it's a little stopping point on the way. And this we'll see what happens. Um, Look at verse 13. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. So they passed through these other places that are hard to pronounce in verse 12. And they come to the house of Micah. And verse 14. Uh, before they get there, the five men who had gone out to scout the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there's an ephod, house of whole gods, carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. In other words, hey, we're on our way to go kill everybody, but since we're here, let's go steal Micah's stuff and take it all. It looks like good stuff on our way. We're already in active disobedience. Let's just go ahead and send some more. Look at all that stuff. It looks pretty good. So they're going to go into Micah's house and steal it. And they turned aside and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now, the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. You can picture this, right? Here's Micah and his little mom, and he's got some kids, and he's got the, the Levite, and they're all kind of chilling in their house, and all of a sudden, 600 warriors come up and like, we want all your stuff. 600 fighters, and it's just you. And you're like, I, I, I can't stop you. I don't want you to steal my stuff, but I can't stop you. That's the picture, right? They're all going to war, and they're just knocking on this one guy's door, and like, hey, we're going to steal your stuff on the way. So it's a little bit overkill, nevertheless. So 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, 17. And five men who had gone out to scout the land went up and entered and took the carved image and the ephod and the household gods and the metal image, while the priests stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. They just went in and took all his stuff. And there the priest is just standing there, not stopping him. He's just like... Okay, here you are taking the stuff. This is my employer, but you're taking everything. Verse 18, and when these, uh, and when these went into Micah's house and took the carved uh, image of Ephod, the household gods, the middle image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? So he finally speaks up. And they said to the priest, keep quiet. Put your hand on the mouth. And by the way, while you're being quiet, you want a job? <laughs> like what? Watch this. Uh, Keep quiet and come with us and be a father and priest to us. It's better for you to be priests for, for just one man or to be a priest for a whole tribe and a whole clan in Israel. So you be quiet and wh- while you're here, why don't you come be our priest and leave this bum? You could come be our guy. You could be a priest for a whole nation. Watch what the guy does. And the priest's heart was glad. He's like, yeah, that sounds good to me. I'll leave this guy. 
And then he's like, and by the way, you want me to help you carry the stuff you're stealing? Let me, let me get it for you. Thanks for the job. I'll just take it out. Bye, Micah. Look what he says. I mean, literally, it's offers to carry this stuff. And the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household gods and carved image and went along with the people. <laughs> Thanks for the job offer. See ya, Micah. Let me carry that stuff you're stealing. See ya. Like, that's just awful, right? Pretty terrible stuff. And here's what's happening. We're going to stop here and point out the third thing. False religion that started with the brain of Micah's mom, went to Micah, infused his family, in came the Levite, and now is infusing the whole tribe of Dan. We see what it's doing. It's spreading. False religion spreads treacherously like cancer. False religion spreads like cancer. Conversely, the gospel brings healing. It heals the cancer that's going on. And these people are in desperate need to hear the good news. What started in mom's brain spread to the apostasy of the entire family of Micah, and now it's spread to the entire apostasy of an entire tribe of Dan. And the men of Dan are exactly like Maya, Micah. Micah started it, and now he's getting his stuff taken, but it's because of him. They all suffer from the curse of restlessness and alienation because they have not obeyed God. They've not obeyed God. And then the priest here leaves. In verse 19, the priest just leaves. It's like, hey, we're, we're stealing this guy's stuff. You want a job? And the priest's heart was glad because all of a sudden, higher paying job sounds good to me. And so he's, what started for him where he should have been a Bethlehem, in Bethlehem as a Levite, wandering around, Micah hires him for a lot of money he shouldn't have got and serving one household, which he shouldn't have been doing. He then takes a better, more prestigious, higher paying job and that's offered to him and it makes the, heart, the priest's heart glad. Well, of course it does because the priest is entirely self-interested. Um, and each move he takes, in each job he takes, takes him further away from God as a priest not closer, which means we all can do that. Even the pastor, each job that I could take could actually take me further away from God if it's just stair steps to make more money or to have more power. And that's what's going on in the priest. He is entirely self-interested. And we should not be like this. We shouldn't look out for our interests and our interests alone. Well, here's what happens. So they turned and they departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. So the big army takes all the stuff. They put all the good stuff they've stolen in the front and the army's in the back and they walk like that so that if the Micah decides to come out, they got to go through the army to get the stolen stuff. And sure enough, as they leave, Micah's standing over here like, well, this is all our stuff got. He goes and grabs a couple of people and says, let's go get our stuff. And so they run out there and the army's there and the stuff's on the other side. And here we have the confrontation. When they had gone a distance from the house of Micah, I'm in verse 22, the men who were in the houses near Micah's were called out. So you're like, come on out. And it says they overtook the people of Dan. That, it really just means caught up. They caught up to the army of Dan. Uh, and they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what's the matter with you that you come with such a company? The, the warriors are like, the 600, why, why are you here, Micah, with all those people? Why'd you bring all those people out here? You can't get your stuff back. And this is what Micah says. Listen to this. This is tragic. You take my gods that I made and you take my priests and go away and what have I left? God! You have God, finally. The syncretism, all that stuff is gone and all you have is God and all you want is the stuff. You just want to scream out to him, finally you're at a place, man, where Jesus is the only thing you have left. Don't you want to treasure him? Like everything's finally gone and you want your stuff Instead of Yahweh. What do I have left? You just, you have Yahweh now. You have Yahweh. This is good news for Micah, but he doesn't see it as good news. Tim Keller says it this way. Ultimately, death finally removes all the false gods that we look up to for blessing instead of Yahweh. Micah was blessed to discover the emptiness of all those lowercase gods. When he was alive and all he had was Yahweh, will it be too late? We desperately need a Micah moment. I need it. To have all of our gods, lowercase g, ripped away. And we just have to say, what do I have left? And then the Holy Spirit says, you've got Jesus. Like in John 6, when Peter and all of them are leaving, they're all thinking, and disciples are turning away, and they're all, and Jesus looks at them and says, are you going to leave? And Peter's like, where am I going to go? You're the one with the words of eternal life. We got to be brought to that moment where we just have nothing else. I have nothing left. And you're like, yes, 
finally. I have nothing left but Jesus. May he now be the only thing. It's so tragic. I've got nothing left. And he says, Michael just says, how can you ask me what's wrong? You've taken everything. And the people of Dan said, don't let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life for the lives of your household. The people of Dan went their way and Micah saw that they were too strong for him. So he just went out there and he's like, well, I can't get my stuff back. And he just goes home. (laughs) Like, I guess all my stuff's gone. Terrible, terrible ending. But here we have verse 27 is the the mess pile up. This is where it finally just all the mess piles up in verse 27. And here's what shows where, uh, uh, well, I want to say one last thing about Micah is we're confronted with this, with this question with, with Micah's, what do I have left? Who are we worshiping or what are we worshiping? We're all wired as worshipers and we have to realize that there's really nowhere else to go in life and we don't need to turn anywhere else that Jesus is all we have and all we really need ultimately. Now, back to verse 27, the mess pile up. Whenever we see this, it says, but the people of Dan took what Micah made and the priest who belonged to him and they came to Laish. Here it is, to a people quiet and unsuspecting. And here it is. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and they burned the city with fire. Again, judges in the fire, right? Um, And there was no deliverer for the people of Laish because it was so far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. And it was in that valley that belongs to Beth Rehob that they built the city and lived in it. So the Danites finally built their city that they were never supposed to have and this is not really where they're supposed to be. And they named the city Dan after there's Dan of their ancestor who was born into Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And if you look in Genesis, when Abraham pronounced, Abraham, uh, Jacob pronounces all the, all the things, uh, blessings and curses are, are on his 12 kids. To Dan, he says, trouble's coming to you, Dan. Told him a long time ago and here it is. Um, and they named the city Dan, but it was supposed to be Laish. And verse 30, and the people of Dan set up, here it is, carved images for themselves. And the writer holds this to the very end of, and, and, and 18. He doesn't want you to know all the way through until here. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Mo- Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites. That priest that was hired in 177, the young man, the southern guy, his name was Jonathan. And who is Jonathan? The son of Gershom, the son of Moses. The big mess up, pile of mess up is one, Dan. Remember when I said active disobedience leads to more active disobedience? It's because uh, instead of going and obeying God in Judges 134, they go kill a bunch of people and take over a land that never was theirs. Active disobedience. And more so, they bring this guy, Jonathan, who's just a, 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 a priest for hire and... Here it is. He's the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, which means apostasy has infected the house of Moses. Hear this as a Jewish reader. Moses, the house of Moses is now apostate. That would strike them as awful. By holding back the priest's identity, one commentator says, by holding back the priest's identity until the very end of the narrative and then disclosing it, that he's related to Moses, the writer essentially crushes the reader under a literary load of bricks. Shock, dismay, disbelief, and, and a helpless feeling of tragedy are the appropriate reactions. We should just, Moses, his family's now apostate. This just lets us see the downward spiral of depravity that happens here. Moses is rolling over in his grave, wherever that is. If you read Deuteronomy, you don't know where it is because God buried him. You don't know when got it. Good. Little seminary joke. Um, so anyway, um, and then verse 31. And he ends the, this little section for us. So they set up Micah's carved images that he made. Again, that just means they set up 17.5. They set up a, a shrine, a house of lower G gods. And then he just puts this last thing. As long as the house of God was at Shiloh. There was an appropriate place to worship. This brings us to our fourth thing. False religion leads to active disobedience of God and tragedy. And disobedience leads to disobedience to disobedience. Conversely, true, truly worshiping Jesus leads to a real life and real worship of God, none of which is here. There was a house of God in Shiloh that none of these people knew about and none of these people went to. One commentator says, and what should Dan and Micah have done 
Judges 8.31, all the time there was a house of God in Shiloh. God had made it possible for his people to approach him, to worship him, to know him, and to live with him. And they weren't doing that. They were having their house of lower G gods instead of the house of God at Shiloh. The house of God, the tabernacle, the place of God's presence among his people was in Shiloh. It should have been the focal point of Micah, the Danites, and all of Israel. So God's tabernacle should also be for us today. The man who is literally the tabernacle, the word become flesh, tabernacled among us, Jesus. And if we don't center our lives on Jesus as the way to approach and worship and know and live with God, we're sending our lives on a man-made religion, on an idol, and something that will never bring us blessing. And so as it closes, it's telling all of us, Tabernacle and Shiloh, worship at the house of capital G. Make it easy. Put Jesus on the throne and get rid of all the other idols. That's the place that believers find their rest in what Christ has done and find true life. And we don't have a life of tragedy. We have a life of of worship. We don't have treacherous, sinful cancer spreading. We have true gospel healing. We don't have the judgment of God and curses. We have blessings of God. We don't have um, heretical worship. We have true worship for our King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this difficult set of chapters because it points us to Jesus. It points us to the fact that all our hope is in King Jesus. So help us now learn from these people and set all of our hope on Christ. Don't let us live tragic lives, syncretistic lives where we have a worship of Jesus sprinkled in with a bunch of other culture idolatry of 2018. Instead, bring us to that moment just like Micah where everything's ripped away and all we have is Jesus. And instead of saying, what else do I have? We say, praise the Lord, all I have is Jesus. Everything's been ripped away finally. Let's put Jesus on our, the throne of our heart and worship him rightly. Bring us to that point, Lord. Help us see him as king, the only king of our heart. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We're going into a time of the Lord's